The Old Testament reading is from Jonah, starting in chapter 1, and this is right after Jonah was thrown overboard. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here comes uh, a highly intelligent and confusing section written by Paul. Um, It took me a lot of rereading and research to try to figure out what he was saying. So I'm going to go a little slower and um, pause often to hopefully help get Paul's point across. Uh, And I took some notes on my phone, so ignore that. Uh, So the epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. This whole idea of someone who's supposed to be the savior of the world dying uh, seemed silly to anybody on their way to hell. But But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, so part of God's master plan is that We can't really know and understand him just through our our human wisdom. We need him to kind of reveal that for us. It pleased God, through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. So instead of human wisdom, God uses this seemingly foolish idea of the Savior dying to actually be what saves us. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs. Uh, Jews were, of course, looking for the Messiah, Uh, And they wanted some miraculous signs, wanted proof that Jesus was this Messiah. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Uh, Greeks loved philosophy and they wanted a good philosophical argument as to why they should believe in this Jesus. But we preach Christ crucified. Jesus asks us to believe, um, to take him at his word. Uh, and especially for the people in Paul's time and for us today who we didn't live with Jesus in the flesh, we didn't see him raised from the dead, we are called to just believe. Uh, So verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This idea that the Savior would die, for the Jews it doesn't make any sense because God wouldn't die. And for the Gentiles, why should they listen to this dead criminal who got crucified? Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. So Christ in his death and then his resurrection ended up being that everything that both the Jews and the Gentiles wanted, what they were looking for, he ended up being all of that. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What seemed like God's foolish plan and his weakness in death ended up being, obviously, neither of those things. For consider your calling, brothers. So Paul's saying, think about the fact that you guys, out of all the people in the world, think about the fact that you guys are being saved. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, or things that are thought of as nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul, in this paragraph, Paul is kind of giving a little bit more support for the first paragraph. Uh, He's pointing out that uh, most of Christ's followers at that time and at this, uh, we're not the wisest or more, most powerful people in the world. God likes to use us weaklings. He likes to use the weak of the earth, just in the same way that he, liked, he chose to use a, what seemed to be foolish and seemed to be weak in Christ dying to end up being the powerful saving of the world. Verse 30, He is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made our wisdom, uh, pause, uh, God is the mastermind behind us having eternal life. And now Jesus is our play, uh, is our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. So Jesus is going to emphasize this same idea that Paul was talking about, that God uses and elevates those that seem worldly, weak, and foolish. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Three three different ways of thinking about Jonah. One is the sort of like, the Sunday school kid way. The, 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 can I call this naive a little bit, maybe? I don't mean naive in a, in a negative sense. But just, of course, it's in the Bible, so of course uh, we believe it. Uh, two is the skeptical. It's not, 
possible for somebody to exist for three days in the stomach of a whale and still survive. The story is clearly, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a sweet bit of fiction. Maybe it's sort of a moralistic parable that teaches some sort of truth. Uh, the third way is, I'm going to guess most of you are in this, those of you who are Christians, most of you are in this camp. The third way is, um, well, I believe it, because I guess I signed up for this whole thing. Uh, but I'm not exactly sure like how that works, or I feel a little bit embarrassed to say out loud that I believe that somebody was swallowed by a fish and existed for three days and then got coughed back up and went on to live a, a apparently normal life. So uh, what, I want, what I want to do is talk today about how is it possible, is it important for us to, to, to believe this story about the big fish? Is it how, if we do believe in the story of the big fish, like what difference does it make? Like what's, what's the big deal with the story of the big fish? Okay, so let me just say this. So one of the reasons why it's, it's embarrassing uh, to believe in a story like this, one of the reasons why it's easy to be skeptical about a story like this is a very particular problem right now. And when I say right now, I mean the past 300 years. Uh, in the Enlightenment in the West, uh, we have been told, we've told ourselves, and we've been told by our culture that uh, superstition is backwards, that Believing in things that you can't prove is not actually knowledge. We've been offered up a myth, and the myth is that there's actually things you can prove that you can know. I don't want to unpack that right now, although we should do that sometime. What I do want to say is this. What you think about the Jonah story is a lot like what you think about any story, whether it's the story of Jonah or the story of Jesus' resurrection or the story of the Battle of the Bulge or the story of the 1960 Pirates' victory in the World Series. How you view these things all comes down to, I'll give you a fancy word here, your presuppositions. A presupposition is a belief that you have that can't be proved, but is the foundation for all your other beliefs. Let me say that again. A presupposition, everybody has these. A presupposition is a foundational belief that you can't prove, it's not, it's not scientifically verifiable, but it's the basis of everything else that you believe. And believe it or not, everybody has presuppositions. In fact, it's impossible to know anything without a presupposition to make sense of what you're knowing. Everybody's this way. The most scientific person in the world is this way. The most backward, superstitious person in the world is this way. We have presuppositions. Have you ever wondered, have you ever seen somebody who have you ever known anybody who, when they, they're offered friendship or compassion from somebody, will reject it, will be cynical, will be instantly convinced that that person's just trying to be nice to me in order to control me, in order to get what I want? That, that, that scenario, though, if the person who's offering the kindness would offer the kindness to somebody else, that other person might very well accept it and embrace it and think, yes, I've been wanting a new friend. This is terrific. How can the same kindness offered from the same person be rejected? Well, it comes down to presuppositions. One person presuppose they can't prove it. They don't have any sort of like logical reason for believing that everybody in the world is evil and out to get me. It's their presupposition. And based upon that presupposition, they're extremely cynical about all relationships that get a little bit close to them. 
On the other hand, the other person has no reason in the world to believe that everybody who's nice to me loves me and is genuinely concerned for my welfare. But their presupposition dictates that when somebody's nice to me, I receive that, until proven otherwise, as genuine friendship. It comes down to presupposition. Everything comes down to presupposition. Now, this is what has to do with the fish story. What you believe about this fish story here is entirely based upon your presupposition. I'm gonna, let me, let me tell you about three possible presuppositions that you could bring to the table to try and process this fish story. One is the materialist presupposition. And the materialist presupposition is this. All that exists is the physical universe. That's all that, that, that's all that there is. There is no sort of like, and this is an extremely popular view, by the way, and more and more so, in really radical, in really radical ways. I uh, played a podcast for my uh, seniors at the high school um, recently where um, a guy, uh, he's a, a, a scientist, uh, was trying to grapple with the illusion of free will. You know, you get up in the morning and you're like, you know, should I have the cocoa puffs or should I have the fruity pebbles? And you, you have this illusion, he says, that you're actually choosing one. But... If there's no such thing as personality, if there's no such thing as like the spiritual world, this place inside of you where you can feel feelings and think thoughts and make choices, if there's no such thing as that, then you really don't have a choice to do anything. And he's grappling with this notion of this world that he, you know, he doesn't believe in God, this guy doesn't. And a world without God would be entirely controlled by material forces. It would entirely be controlled by atoms bouncing off each other or by neurons firing, or by chemicals flowing inside of you. What you think are your emotions, what you think are your happy thoughts and your sad thoughts, what you think are your choices, are actually just the chemicals and the neurons bouncing around inside of you. Given that presupposition, that all there is is the material world, then there's no way that this fish thing could ever happen. Because it obviously takes something outside of the world of bio, you know, marine biology for this to work. Something... something alien has to happen to Jonah and to this fish to make this possible. So clearly that's not the case. Here's your second option. The deist worldview. This worldview believes in God. This is actually probably the most common view of God right now in the West. The deist world, and it's a fancy word, but here's what it means. There's a God who exists. Maybe he created everything. You know, you really can't be sure. But there's a God up there somewhere. But he's he has... He has made himself absent from the affairs of humans. Like, he doesn't get involved. He oversees everything with a sort of a general benevolence. Benevolence is how you say that word. But he doesn't actually insert himself to do things. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. The third, the, the, the third presupposition, possible presupposition is this. There is a God, and that God acts to do things in space-time. Now, depending on which one of those three you believe, it has no bearing on whether you are a smart person or not. Is the person who thinks that all love is motivated by greed and desires for control, is that person smarter than the person who thinks that love should genuinely be received and accepted? No, neither one are smart or dumb based upon that. It's all presuppositional. You actually have no... Let me say this a different way. Whether you believe that there's a God who exists, whether you believe that there's a God who exists but isn't interested in our affairs, 
or whether you believe that there's a God who exists who is interested in our affairs, either of those three, any of those three, are all faith positions. There's no logical arguments to get you to that position. You just have to believe it. Now, once you believe it, you can start constructing logical arguments from that. For instance, if God doesn't exist, then I could do whatever I want. If God doesn't exist, then, like in this podcast, my love for my children actually isn't real because they're machines and I'm machines, and it's just a trick of biology that tricks us into thinking that we have affection for each other. If God exists but he's not interested in this, then we can offer him a sort of a general thanks for the wonders of creation, but at the end of the day, we can just do what we want. If God does exist, and he inserts himself into history, then A, we're responsible to do what he wants us to do, and B, we should expect that from time to time, if not all the time, he's going to do things in history that may be surprising. But none of those three people are smarter than the other. See, that's part of the myth, is that if you don't hold position one, you're less than intelligent. Actually, the position one people are just as much people of faith as the most devout religious person. Because everybody has presuppositions that they believe in without reason. Does this make sense? So that's the first thing, is is when it comes right down to it, believing that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and survived for three days comes down to this question, do you believe that God acts in the universe or not? You're totally free to say, I'm totally free to think. Weird story. (laughs) That's bizarre. It seems crazy that something like that would happen. But if there's a God who exists, we should anticipate that stuff like this can happen if he wants it to happen. All right, that's the first move. Let's look at the text and see if there's anything else in here that's going to help us. And and I'll freely admit that today we're not looking at the text as much as we usually do. We're going to come back to the whole, you know, so uh, uh, Jonah prays this prayer in chapter 2 here that we read this morning. We're going to come back and read that whole thing again next week and talk about it in detail. But today I just want to focus kind of on the fish thing. So in verse 17 it says, now do you remember this when you were in Sunday school when you were a kid, those of you who grew up in church? Like, I remember this as being, like, the story of Jonah. It's mainly, like, you've got 30 seconds of intro, and then it's the fish thing, you know. And you've got the big pictures of the fish, and uh, there's Jonah sitting, you know, sitting inside the fish, you know. And he might, it's, uh, uh, we, we were talking to community group, uh, the thing last Sunday night. It's, you know, he's sitting there, and it's just kind of a spacious room, you know. You can see the rib cage kind of arched over him, and he's got some moved room around. It's surprisingly well lit in there. You know, and so the whole story is like he's, he's swimming around inside this fish, and then he gets spit up and he goes to Nineveh. That's the 30 seconds of denouement. But the, the, the things about the fish, actually in Jonah, it's just this one verse, right? Lord appointed a fish, swallowed Jonah. He was there three days and three nights. For a fairy tale, or for a piece of mythology, or for, uh, or for an exciting story of like some crazy supernatural thing that happens, it just doesn't have a lot of detail. It's not written sensationally. You, know, you think about think about stories of fairy tales where magical things happen. You know, think about something like Cinderella or something like that. You know, for the magic to happen, there's just like this process, and there's incantations, and there's people waving wands and doing things. Think about for a, a, a more contemporary fairy tale. If you've seen Stranger Things, think about the character in there with the supernatural powers who can do stuff to save people, and when she does. It's like this force of effort, you know, and it's like everybody kind of backs away and lets her focus and do this. And it's kind of the center dramatic piece of what's happening in the story. 
But if this is a fairy tale, it's, it's a, not written like a normal fairy tale. It's just sort of like a mundane. You know, he fell in the water, fish swallowed him three days and three nights, and moves on. It's just the space of one verse. So that's one thing, is that it, it just doesn't feel fairy tale-ish. Uh, uh, to, to, to the reader, it just doesn't feel like it's this magical tale, right? Uh, second, also in verse 17, it's, a, it's appointed by Yahweh. This goes back to our original uh, thought here. Is that this isn't just some sort of like, whoa, that guy just got swallowed by a big fish. Did you see that? No, God's actually in charge of the whole story. And he's picked out a fish. He's appointed it, whatever this word appoints mean. He's in charge of putting this fish in the path of Jonah, so that the fish can do the very same, the very thing that he does. So it's not a random thing. God is definitely in charge. It fits in with the rest of the story of Jonah. Here's the third little bit of narrative information. You know, so there's this thing, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, there's this thing with going down in Jonah that I haven't really talked about too much. I think I maybe mentioned it. You know, a God approaches Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah doesn't want to, so he goes down to Joppa. And then he pays his fare and he goes down to the ship and says, and once he's on the ship, he goes down into the hold. And now finally he's going down. Well, as he says here in, in uh, chapter two, verse, um, let's see if I find it real quick here. Uh, it's in the first part of these, uh, uh, it's in there somewhere. I'm not going to read the whole thing out loud again. He goes down into the deep. He says, you cat, verse three, for you cast me into the deep. He's down as low as, as low as he can go. It's part of the narrative trajectory. This makes sense in the story, right? And God's going to bring him back up again for purposes that we'll look at in the upcoming weeks. But it's a part of the story. Also, not just Jonah, but it's a part of the larger biblical story too. There's this theme running through Scripture of being saved from drowning miraculously so that God's greater redemptive purposes can happen. Think about Noah. Noah in the yard is a big one, right? I mean, I know Noah builds the boat. That's kind of a crazy thing to do, to rescue these people from drowning. Think about Moses. Moses uh, being put out by his mother into the Nile in this little basket and rescued. Think about the people of Israel uh, crossing the Red Sea with walls of water around them, being saved from drowning by this miraculous occurrence. Think about, now we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but think about the disciples on the boat in the storm when Jesus gets up and says, peace be still. There's this theme of God Accomplishing his redemptive purposes by saving from drowning. This is not, this is not something that's just sort of this random blip on the biblical radar screen. This is a story that happens quite frequently. It's not anything that should be surprised, should surprise us. And now, there's one more thing I want to tell you about. One more way that this fits into the biblical narrative. One more way that this makes sense in the story of the world and in the story of your life. But to get there, to set us up for that, I want to, I want to ask you this question here. What, what if you, what, what if you, let's say, let's say that you were the head of a team of uh, brilliant scientists and you were working on some sort of like scientific discovery and you were working, let's say that you were working for some uh, uber well-funded institution. Let's say that your team was employed by Johns Hopkins. And then you're working on this and you're making super good progress. And then you hear that one of your colleagues in some other uh, program you know, maybe some other small program, like a, like a colleague at some state school that maybe didn't have as much funding devoted to that, to that particular program would say, well, of course they're making progress. Like, look at all the money that they get. Look at the endowments that that school has devoted to that particular branch of science. Of course they're making progress. And you were determined to prove to people that your 
team was the best, that you were the best scientist around and that you could lead the best team around, what would you do? One of your options would be uh, to cut off funding, I guess, but one of your options would be like to start getting rid of your crack team and filling them in with maybe not so great scientists in order to get this done to prove that you actually were the leader, that you were the, the best leader, that you could lead any team of scientists to make these discoveries. Say, same thing, like, let's say you're a basketball coach, right? And you, let's just say, let's say you're a basketball coach like uh, Phil Jackson, who coached the Bulls and the Lakers with phenomenal teams. Or, you know, John Wooden at UCLA, or if you were Casey Stengel managing the Yankees back in the 1950s. And the conversation would always go like this. Like, Casey Stengel's a great manager, or, or you know, or uh, Phil Jackson's a great coach. And the, 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 the follow-up conversation is, well, of course he is. It's easy, to, it's easy to coach when you've got Michael Jordan, right? It's easy to be a great coach when you have Mickey Mantle playing center field. What, what would you do if you were Casey Stengel and you wanted to prove to everybody that you really were a great coach? One of the things you could do was you could cut Mickey Mantle and put Aaron Miller in center field. And if you could win with them, you would genuinely be a great coach. What if God wanted to prove that he's the great God? It's actually what the story of the Bible is about. He wanted to demonstrate his glory to the whole creation. He wanted everybody to know that he alone was the majestic one. What would he do? Would he hire, this goes along with Dave's, Dave's uh, reading of 1 Corinthians this morning. Would he hire the Mickey Mantles of the Christian world? Would he hire the wise ones? Would he hire the brilliant ones? Would he not instead hire the ignorant ones, the foolish ones, the weak ones? What if even then he was determined to make his point even more clearly? What if he was determined to say, you know what, I can beat, I can beat you, Satan. And the enemy would say to him, well, of course you can. You're the creator God. You invented me. No, 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 God says, let's do this. I can beat you with one hand tied behind my back. And then Satan says, well, yeah, I, I believe that too. Still with just one hand, you're still the strongest ever. And then God ups the ante even more. And he says, no, no, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to be dead while I do it. I'm going to let you kill me, and I'll still win. What if you, as the basketball coach, could put five dead people on the floor and still win the game? You would be the greatest coach of all time. That's what God's doing. God is going to save the Ninevites, and he's going to do it with the dead guy, Jonah. Jonah says it like three or four different times. We'll look at this next week. I'm in the deep. I'm in Sheol, he says in verse 2, that Sheol is the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. Like, I'm a goner. It's, it's done. It's, 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 it's all done. And God says, no, 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 it's not done. I'm going to save the world with a dead guy. Satan, Satan takes the bait, of course. He's, he himself is the one who tempts Judas to go and try to get Jesus off. And when Jesus dies, Satan thinks he wins because God's gone too far. You can't win with dead people. But the dead guy comes back to life. And as it turns out, him coming back to life makes him more powerful than he ever was before, just ordinarily, just as a man, as a construction worker. His vindication as the Son of God, made by his resurrection from the dead, 
means that he's the Lord of the universe and he can accomplish anything. Whatever problems you have, think about the problems that you have up to and including the fact that you're dying right now. God is going to solve those problems. He's going to do it for his own glory. He's not going to do it with great doctors and great medicine, although that's tools that he uses. He's not going to, he's not going to do, he's not going to solve your financial problems with, with your budget or with your great financial planning, although you should be doing those things. He's going to solve those things by becoming a dead person and by rising from the dead and then solving all your problems. Amen.